If you would, please turn to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John 1, the back of your Bibles. In a moment I will be reading verses 1 through 4. But I want us to first imagine yourself not sitting here in 2014, but you're sitting 2,000 years ago with the Apostle John who walked with Jesus, the man. He was there at the Last Supper. He was standing there for hours at the cross. He was being taught for weeks by Jesus after His resurrection. And you're in a little room and you're eating with Him and you look at Him and you say, John, what are you all about? Pastor John, do you really love me? If you do, then tell me something that is crucial for my life. The smile comes on his face as his eyes beam and he says to you, that which was from the beginning, which we, Peter, the brother James, and Matthew, and the others, we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched physically with our hands concerning the Word of life. Oh, the, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He looks you in the eye and He says, I am telling you these things so that my joy might be made complete. Blessed is the reading of God's holy word. In other words, John says, I am all about my joy in Jesus. And I want you to be joyfully moved by the truth of Jesus as I am. That is the opening four verses of this letter. Let's pray. So Father, I pray, we ask as helpless sheep, open our minds 
to read well this text. Open our hearts to see clearly and receive when it says that our joy may be full to the glory of Jesus. Amen. Alright, so if you have a Bible open, it's a little bit harder if you have one of those devices, but if you have a Bible open, you can see the whole paragraph before you, and I want you to notice the first three verses all the way down up to the end of verse 3. In the Greek, that is one complex sentence. And it, actually, it also is in the ESV English translation. So I want to spend a couple minutes just unfolding it first. As you look at all those words there before you, the main verb, which is what you should always look for in a sentence, is it, it's the core, it's the center of a sentence, of a proposition that's being said. The main verb does not occur until verse 3, where John says, we proclaim to you. See it? And so all those words that come before it are the object of His verb. The proclamation. All those other words are John's and the other apostles' message. It is the apostolic proclamation. And in this passage, that proclamation is there for two purposes. First, it's there in order to create something. John says it's there in order to create true Christian fellowship. And secondly, it is there, he proclaims it, for his increased joy in it. Look at verses 3 and 4. We proclaim also to you... See, now he gives the reason. So that. Here it is. Why, John? Here's the purpose. So that you too, or you also, may have fellowship with us, the apostles. And let me just say, trust me, you don't want to be a person who doesn't have fellowship with the apostles. That, we, that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. In a nutshell, there's the text. What is the proclamation? He starts it off in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. Okay, so there He is. He sums this proclamation up in what He just said throughout verse 1 as the Word of life. Then, verse 2 is like a parenthesis where He goes on to, to unfold that eternal life. 
Explaining how in the world could it be seen and heard and touched. You can't see God, eternal, unbeginning, without beginning, life. You can't see that. He explains what He means in verse 2. The life was made manifest. And we, John, other apostles, we have, He means His physical eye here, have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. And now this is stunning. Which was with the Father. And this is even more stunning. And was made manifest to us. The word of life that he's referring to is clearly Jesus. And the message of Jesus. Verse 2, he says, The life was with the Father. He's referring to the Son. The proclamation in this opening paragraph of John's letter is about Jesus and His work of salvation. Now, just for a moment, I want you to remember last week's introduction to this book that we're working our way through just for a minute. There's a context. There are false teachers who are teaching and infiltrating the churches with the false teaching that the eternal, beautiful, good Creator in no way became identical to or with flesh creation. Okay, So I'm going to take that if you have heard it, which I hope you have, I'm going to put it together for a moment and I'm going to totally rewrite this opening paragraph for a second. In other words, I'm going to paraphrase it. At least you can see how I'm understanding what John as a whole is saying here. We concentrate on the historical manifestation of the eternal because we apostles are uniquely qualified as eye, ear, and touch witnesses to the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ whom the Father made manifest us. We, we also make this a particular emphasis because of the false teachers of the, of the heretics who deny the truth of the Incarnation by distinguishing the Divine Christ Spirit from the man Jesus upon whom they say the Christ Spirit only descended upon Jesus at His baptism. And before His suffering and death, He left Him. We testify that no, but that this Christ is the historical Jesus. They are the same person as the eternal Word who was always with the Father. So, the simple flow of this opening paragraph is that we apostles have been appointed and God made us eyewitnesses. 
in order to proclaim the Word of life, the eternal life, the incarnation, God becoming man. And then he goes, why? In order or for the purpose that in your hearing you may have fellowship with us who are in Christ, having fellowship with the Father and the Son. And this spreading of the truth, talking about it, being clear about it, John says, is to our doubling of our joy that we already have in Him. Okay. That's the text. Now let's do it again, but very slowly. Because what John lays out in these opening four verses is crucial to believe in order to be saved. So let's briefly look at what he's saying. First part. John is declaring that that man, that human being, that carpenter named Jesus, the one he refers to in the text here as the life, He has eternally existed with the Father. By eternal, I mean without beginning. There is no going back and you hit a wall and say, oh, it started here. He is eternal. Verse 2, John calls Him the life. See it? The life was made manifest. Made manifest, meaning Christ came into the world. He, he came. He appeared to us. And John is very clear about what he means as you flip forward to chapter 5 for a second. In verses 11 and 12 where he writes, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so, this life who is Christ is eternal. It's without beginning. Look at verse 2 again. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. Testify to it. And proclaim to you readers the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. With the Father. That's what John means in his very first proposition in verse 1. That which was from the beginning. Now, he doesn't mean there the beginning of the preaching of the Gospel. the proclamation. No, 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 no. He means what he means in his other writing. The fourth Gospel. The way he began. He's talking about when things that are not God began, called creation, that's the beginning. This one I'm talking about, He was there with the Father. And then, God created Him. 
And somewhere down the road of human history, then that very One who was with the Father was made manifest in history through the womb of the Virgin Mary. See it? Which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and and heard. The eternal Son was before all creation. He was before His historical manifestation as a human being through Mary. And all life, and all eternal and everlasting mercy and good comes through Him and because of Him. Who? That eternal life who became a man through the womb of Jesus. Now, you, you know it, so hopefully you know it by heart. It's one of the most famous portions of Scripture. John 1. The same Apostle, and this is how he wrote, he's essentially trying to say the same thing in the opening Gospel of John, his prologue, and in this prologue to his epistle to the churches, where he writes, In the beginning was the Word. First John. That which was from the beginning... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, of course he just calls that Word the life and the eternal life in his epistle, the Word was with God. The eternal life which was with the Father. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning before anything was made with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made or created that was made. And in Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the Word, the eternal life, with the Father, verse 14, John 1, became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what John's saying. Was made manifest to us so we can touch Him, see Him, hear Him as sound waves through physical world. That's the One who is God. That's why in John 8, Jesus says to the Pharisees, Abraham who lived 1,700 years ago, before He was born, I am. Which really, a, that's the name of Yahweh, the God to Himself. This is what John is proclaiming. And that's why the church got together at the very first ecumenical council in the year A.D. 325 in the city of Nicaea. And we have the Nicaean Creed because they had to deal with pastors, teachers, preachers who we're starting to teach that Jesus, the Christ, was far superior than any human being. But, He did begin. He was ultimately created. No. So, so, So we confess, along with all who stay away from heresy on this issue, we confess with the Nicene Creed, 
He, Christ, was eternally begotten of the Father. Begotten, not made or created. The Son that John is referring to as an apostle is co-eternal and co-equal and of one essence with the Father. Verse 2. The eternal life which was with the Father. Now notice, John says that this eternal life, that One became flesh. Verse 2. The life was made manifest. What life? The life of God. The eternal life which was always with the Father. You can't see it. No one has seen God in His divine nature. But He says this, that very life was seen. Made manifest. In other words, that which you could not see before, now you saw. Made manifest. And John says, we, the apostles, have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The eternal life became visible. He appeared. How? That's what he explains in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our physical hands concerning the Word of life. The man Jesus, God the Son, took to Himself a real, genuine human nature. Soul and body. And that is a crucial, unessential doctrine of Christianity. John, remember, in this letter is combating the heresy that's floating around that the divine person never became human. Not identical to the man, Jesus. Let me just make a couple comments before I move on. There are two major areas, I mean errors, to avoid when we are thinking about, like if you are apt to do as a genuine Christian, you love the Bible, and so you're taking a shower and you're all thinking, hmm, thinking about that sermon. The God became man. Okay, how's that work? Okay, a couple errors to save you from, okay? Because they've already been tried and condemned as heresy and rightfully so. When we talk about the eternal one becoming manifest in the flesh, becoming human, When we talk about Jesus or the Christ, we do not mean two persons. We don't mean the divine person and the human person. See, when you start to do that and you start to become and you become a pastor or get your own little internet thing going, and you start teaching that, you might get a heresy named after you. Like a man named Nestorius about 1600 years ago did. And so we call that heresy Nestorianism. Also, when we refer to 
Christ. We don't mean, yeah, the God-man. God became man. Oh, the divine nature came and merged with the human nature and they got all mixed up and stirred around in a soup and you kind of got this third nature, this really weird Greek mythological idea of a, of a God-man. We, we don't mean that the natures are confused and mixed up with one another. If you do, you might get a heresy named after you if your name is Eutychus. Eutychus. Kimism. No, it's not what we mean. What do we mean? We mean when we refer to Christ, we're talking only about one person with two distinct natures. We don't mean Christ is 50% God and 50% human. We mean He is fully 100% God and has never ceased to be. That one second person of the Holy Trinity. And we mean He is fully 100% genuine humanity. And so, along with the Council of Chalcedon in A.D. 451, we're saying we believe in one person, Jesus. The one person who is truly man or human and truly God or divine. But the two natures that He has, they are united. They're united in the one person. But in that union, in the one person, the divine nature doesn't taint, mess with, or change the human nature of the one person. Or vice versa. We must, as we refer to Christ, distinguish between the two natures of Jesus without separating those natures from the one person. It is true, Jesus was hungry. The one person who eternally existed with the Father was in need of food. Hungry. That wasn't His divine nature that was hungry though. It was the one person's human nature. When the one person, Jesus, died on a cross, we mean not some separate person other than the divine Son who eternally existed with the Father. We mean that person, but the divine nature did not die. That one person did die in His human nature. He was raised from the dead. And He ascended to the Father. And He will come again. And you know, Jesus is not here this morning in His human nature. But that same person is very present with us in His divine nature. He is omnipresent. Now, 
people would love for me to go on. Some want me to go on and get away from this. And others might want me to go on. Let's talk more because I've got a thousand questions. Sorry, we're not going to do that right now. I've got a phone. I've got a home group. I've got after church. All you want. Okay. That's all I've got to say about that at this moment. But now this is what I want to say. You'll never grasp all that. You'll never get your mind around it and say, oh, it makes all the sense in the world. We have no analogies for such, okay? But I will say this. If you have been born again, if you've been brought out of darkness into His light, then you do believe in that. You do believe that God somehow, mysteriously in the womb of Mary, became a human being. You do believe that the eternal God and the Creator of the universe has all authority to command you. The One in His humanity who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody gets to the Father unless they come through Me. You do believe that if you have been born again. You see, the reason that that many in religious circles for 2,000 years and to today refuse to believe in the one person with two distinct natures is not simply because it's so complex and baffling. And it is complex! And it is mind-boggling. But that's not the foundational reason people refuse to believe it. The foundational reason is sin. It is the hardness of heart. At the core, deep down, it is the threat of an authority who became man. An authority over their natural, sinful desires. That's why. Let me just quote John chapter 3, verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things, everyone in here knows what it is to do wicked things and be sinful. We can relate to this. Now watch what he says. Everyone who's doing wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. That's the reason. Why? Because His works will be exposed. Now, they may use 10,000 reasons why they won't believe the core of the Gospel of Jesus. But that's really it. The truth of the Incarnation for the last 2,000 years has always been one of the key tests of whether a person is a Christian or not. Of whether the Holy Spirit dwells within them. Because only the Holy Spirit can break our pride and drag us into the grace of the cross and cause us to say, yes, God became man. Command me, Lord Jesus. That's only the work of the Spirit. That's what John's getting at a little bit later in chapter 4. So Christians, as teachers float around through the centuries and you listen to them and you want to know 
Does the Spirit of Christ or of God dwell truly in them? This is what He tells you. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, truly human, that one is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus has come in the flesh is not from God. One of the key works of the Holy Spirit in applying the salvation that Jesus purchased is to open our eyes to see and to love this truth. Okay, now, I want you to notice that John is saying it is only through the one person, two natures, or the eternal one becoming manifested in true humanity in the flesh, only through, that's what we call the incarnation, infleshed of God, okay? Only through the incarnation of Christ that John himself, or any of the other apostles, or any of us in this room could have a positive relationship with God. Look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Our fellowship, it's the word it's referring to a personal experience of sharing something significant with, with others. You have it in common and you fellowship around it. It's like saying the church of Jesus Christ through the centuries preaches the Gospel and it says, that's it. Do you see it? Do you hear it? Do you value this message of John about who Jesus, the historical figure, really is. Do you love it? Do you, do, do, do you love what he says about living the Christian life? That's what koinonia in the New Testament at its core is about. Because that then says, yes, look at that. The Holy Spirit's in you. He opened your eyes too and made us one. And when John says here, our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. What do they share in common? It's got to be John saying... Don't you see what the Spirit, because that's what this book, the Holy Spirit's in this book a lot, and how it connects with the truth that is being preached. He's saying, don't you see what's happening? We're fellowshipping with the Father, which means we have something in common. We are loving what God loves. His Son. The Gospel. 
His glory. We share in common with the Father and the Son. Love. We delight to spend time fellowshipping with the Father and with the Son. See, the fellowship with the Father has got to be meaning something's happening in the soul of John, the Apostle, and what he's inviting us to. He's got to mean that somehow they're hanging out with one another. Which, I'm just going to take a risk and say, I think that might mean that fellowshipping with God in prayer doesn't just mean talking His ear off. You know, sometimes we might act like a here's a PhD in physics, and then here's someone like eighth grade education in physics, and I get together with the physicist, and I just tell him everything I know about physics for an hour, and I give him a minute to tell me what he knows. Sometimes we do that. It is not mainly talking and telling. It is shutting up. In listening to God. And I don't mean sit under a tree and hum until you have a nice thought come in your head. It is listening to where He has shouted about Himself, who He is, and what it looks like to be a believer. It's about hearing what He says about His promises to you, believer, and how He rejoices to do you good. It is listening to His commands. I am for your good. Go this way. I mean, just just think about it. If you had an acquaintance where every time you're with the person, they're so self-centered that they spoke 93% of the time. And then... When you try to get a sentence or two out, you realize they weren't even listening to a thing I said. And, and then you heard, overheard them at some of the time talking to people about you, that you're one of their very closest friends and they have deep fellowship with you. You would think, what? I have to think at times God thinks that with us Christians, myself included. Huh? Fellowship. I speak, and I speak, and I speak, and it lays there by your bed, and in the living room. You rarely pick it up, and if you do, you pick it up with a bored mind. You're unattentive. John's saying, and this is, this is the encouraging part, believer, every day is new. His mercy is new. It is through this Jesus and His work we who believe have fellowship with the Father. And it is amazing. Just think, if there were a God and He actually created and saved and He actually said stuff and had it written down, that would be a great deal, wouldn't it? And it's there. It's there. Someone this morning texted me, I just read Psalm 33, and it was a blessing. I said, I'm gonna have to, I'll, I'll trust you, God. Let me be blessed. And I read it. And I was blessed. Needed it for my soul. 
this intimacy, this fellowship with the Father and with the Son is a gift. And it is the gift that was purchased by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And that gift is offered to whosoever wants it. Come, trust Him, His Gospel, His Word, the prophets and the apostles. Cling to them. Let them absorb into your being and walk daily with Him. That's what Jesus purchased. As John goes on to say in chapter 2, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. There is only one way. To the Creator to be your Father as opposed to have the Creator's wrath hang until judgment day upon us. That's what John is talking about. And now, one more thing. Actually, just two more, but second to last. That is why the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee, makes the doctrine of Christ the basis of his fellowship with other people. The purpose of John being crystal clear on this doctrine in the opening paragraph is so that the readers would get it. They would see it. They would believe it. They would love it. And thus, they would have fellowship with John and the apostles. It's right there, verse 3. Let's read it again. That which we have seen and heard concerning Christ becoming man, we proclaimed you. We teach it to you. We say it to you clearly. Why? So that you also may have koinonia fellowship with us, the apostles. See, if you read this very carefully, John is saying, because our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, therefore, the only way we can have real fellowship with you is to proclaim to you what we know about the Son. The One who we apostles have seen and heard and have been commissioned to testify have everything sufficient in this book that they have said to us. That's John's basis of fellowship. For all I know, the Apostle John loved Roman soccer and the Roman cup every four years along with thousands of other people. But his love of soccer was not the basis of his fellowship in the church. Just put a thousand other illustrations in there. 
This is why we are clear here at Sovereign Grace Fellowship in our core values. The vertical is, is so central. But God is truth and worship. And that vertical cannot be separated from the horizontal. They're distinct. But it is not to be separated. The one another's all over the New Testament. And that koinonia, that fellowship in the New Testament of the one another's is around something that is much greater than any of us. It is much greater than the differing cultures we may come from, than our personalities or our likes or our dislikes. It is the first paragraph of 1 John to start with. It's, just, it's Christ who is making for Himself a bride. And the truth is central for creating genuine Christian fellowship. And so, in order to experience the genuine fellowship with His readers, the Apostle John tells them what he believes about Jesus. In other words, there is no significant Christian fellowship among people who don't share the same view of who Jesus is. The Eternal One with the Father becoming a human being and being manifested and walking and eating and dying and rising. That's John's message. So just, just think about what we're reading. When John wants to foment, nurture, fellowship with this group of people that he's writing to, what does he do? He writes them a letter filled with theology. That's what he does. The deeper you want to have Christian fellowship, the more depth we want in that, then the more Bible. The more construing of meaning from Bible called theology must be fellowshiped around, shared, loved, talked about, discreet about, loved, come to clarity, whatever. But it's at the and there has been in at least the American church for decades theories and methods on how to go about growing church numbers and church budgets precisely by gathering people together into fellowship in the church, not by exalting biblical doctrine or the great doctrines of the faith like what John does here in Christology or the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ, but precisely by avoiding those doctrines. And I hope we would be a people here who have fellowship with each other and fellowship with John the son of Zebedee though he's dead he lives and is in Christ 
have fellowship because we are hungry to be explicitly biblical. In other words, let's be like John in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And finally, don't read over verse 4. Because it is stunningly important. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. See, there was another goal. Another goal besides his first goal was the proclamation, I'm making it in order to create true Christian fellowship among his readers. And then there's a second goal he has. That's what the so that means. And that second goal was the goal of his own joy. The joy that he, John, gets when others hear the truth that he's been entrusted with and also love it. That's what he's saying. And I'm just going to ask as a believer, isn't that your experience? Have you never experienced that? I mean, it'd be one thing to come to Christ and find the Bible on some deserted island and you can never have contact with any other human being who ever saw what you saw. But have you experienced that? You see what I see? Because you've experienced the other, haven't you? Mom or dad or brother or sister or close friend, I've come to... De- can't you see it? And they go, I have no idea what you're talking about. There is an experience that is godly, and should be sought after. The joy you have in Christ. You would want to experience that joy also flowing through you in the joy of others who share it with you. John says, I'm writing these doctrines to you so that my joy, which I have, may be completed and going That's Christianity. God opens the eyes to the truth. And there's a vertical relationship. And there is a vacuum in you that now you find He's the answer. And yet you still hunger. You still hunger to go horizontal with others that He's put you with in the body of Christ. John's the Apostle John. Not just some Christian, the Apostle. As an old man is saying, I'm pen to paper, and I'm telling you, this is about my joy. I'm not dead yet. I'm still on this track. Death is coming. But I'm telling you, hear me. Please get rid of the false teachers. Listen to my doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. And my joy is wrapped up in this. I want you to have the same fellowship I have with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. See, John's not ashamed to say it. 
And we are writing these things for the purpose that our joy may be complete. So, Sovereign Grace, let us continually through this letter as we work our way through it, listen to the voice of God who inspired it. Listen to God through John. This is the essence of Christianity. To come to the one true God in order to get your joy filled. And then to go and seek the completion of that joy by overflowing in communion with others. I mean, here's the principle that John is laying out. The more we are having fellowship with the Father and the Son as we do talk, but we mainly listen to His Word and open it and pray it, the more we are having ongoing fellowship with the Father and the Son through prayer and worship, the more we seek the experience of that very joy in the joy of other believers and then toward unbelievers. Come out. So here's the opening paragraph in a nutshell. John is saying the eternal God became human And through the salvation that is in Him, we obtain a fellowship with God as our Father and with His eternal Son, Jesus. And therefore, flowing out of that, the Gospel of Jesus Christ is the basis of our fellowship with one another. Not my love of sports. Or your dislike of it. Or a thousand others. It is the man, Christ Jesus. And then finally, we should be on the trek of seeking communion with others in our daily walk for our joy with them around biblical Father, Your Gospel, the one that we hear precisely because You have called John, the son of Zebedee. Lord Jesus, an intimate, close friend of Yours. And as He saw You die, Three days later, He met you again in your resurrected body. And then for weeks. Oh, would we be a people that daily cry out for you breaking the hardness of our heart and the hardness towards your Word. That we would be having fellowship with you with Your Son, Jesus. And may those glorious truths that we find in our closet be the truths that are underneath the fellowship that we have with one another. To the glory of Your holy name.
precious name. Amen.